it's like I read the book and I have a book shirt on, so the whole time you could just watch. I am that like, kid. I have my book. hand up. Miss Smith, Miss Smith, Miss Smith, Miss Smith, Miss Smith. <laughs> oh yeah, like it's a cross to bear to be teacher's pet. You know, I swear. Oh yeah. no, I'm telling you, the hardcore kid always does the arm behind the head to support the arm, where he's like, he's like this. Like, you know you're in for the long haul when you do the arm behind the head to hold your arm up for the teacher. That, the teacher has to look at that one and be like, come on, man, just lose the kickstand. That's so funny. <laughs> but it's true. That kid is annoying. <laughs> and that kid was probably me. Um, welcome to the Tragedy Academy, a show created to bridge societal divides in a judgment-free zone using candor and humor. We are joined today by Clementine Moss. And welcome to the show today. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. I really I'm looking forward to our conversation. You've been in my I told you you've been in my my ear for the past couple of days. Just kind of I don't of, know uh, if that's like through. scary. I feel bad for you. Like <laughs> <laughs> no, it's wonderful. Gary, you want to weigh in on that? What's it like to have me in your ear? <laughs> Are you frozen? <laughs> He is frozen, and that's funny. He froze. That's yeah. okay. We'll, that uh, really we'll, we'll roll on without him. He'll come back here shortly. I'll probably kick him out. Okay. That's too funny. Um, that said, Clement, Clementine, I want to call you Clementine, but I also like calling you Clem because Clem just seems so many relaxing. Many people call me Clem. And actually, yeah, one of the few pieces of fruit I like to eat is a Clementine. I love that. It's like, the sweetest of the sweet citrus fruits is the clementine. Oh, is that mm. is that what they say? I didn't know that. That's what they say. I yes, feel like sweet. sweet and sour are subjective. Like, I like cilantro. If my wife even smells it within a country mile, no dice. I feel like there's a That's little a bit. That's a DNA thing, right? It is, right? Like there the are 23 cilantro, and me yeah. tattled on her. I don't know if I like that either. <laughs> but Clem actually is here to discuss her new memoir from Bonham to Buddha and back, The Slow Enlightenment of the Hard Rock Drummer. So before we jump into that, why don't you tell us where you are, where you are, what you do, and um, about this amazing band Zeparella that you're with. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, well, let's see. I, um, um, I live in San Francisco and uh, have for the last 22 years. I spent, uh, after I grew up in California and after I graduated college, I moved to New York City and lived there for 14 years. And then um, I, when I was 27 years old, it was kind of a, as it is, a, uh, if anybody interested in astrology knows that that's around a big event in astrology uh, called the Saturn Return. And um, around 27 years old, I both went to my first 10-day silent meditation retreat I took my first drum lesson and started playing drums. And um, and around that time, my father passed away as well, kind of suddenly, uh, very suddenly, he was 54. So um, that was a big pivot. And as I have been writing, um, as I started, this book came from um, a blog that I have called Bliss and Drumming. Um, and as I started looking at my life and seeing, you know, my spiritual path, my music path um, and saw that, um, you know, these two things, they, they really uh, speak to each other in a really profound way. Um, now, later in my life, now I'm also a spiritual counselor um, and uh, work with uh, a few wonderful modalities based in both Buddhism and uh, 
shamanic techniques. Um, well, you would be yeah, the first person to consult um, on a shamanic journey, I would think. Mm-hmm. Uh, it centers around the drum and that mm-hmm. beat. Tell me what it's like to find yourself standing in a position where you're faced with your father's mortality and mindfulness practice at the same intersection at the same time. What, what is that like for Clem? Well, you know, I, I have the view that, um, that <laughs> to be completely uh, blunt and silly, but to say things happen for a reason. And you're not, um, you're not being I, silly. <laughs> and uh, I went to the meditation retreat in November and in March, my father passed away. Okay. So if, I, if that had not happened in that order, I don't know. Who you'd it be? would have been a completely different process. It would have been a completely different process. But, um, but the tools I gained in those 10 days and the subsequent practice um, set me up to understand change, to understand mm. that our suffering comes from, um, comes from our attachment to wanting things to be a certain way. Resistance to change in and of itself is the yeah, struggle that the we suffering. have for existence. Anytime we fight authenticity, we're pushing and causing pain internally. It'll last yeah. a lifetime until we remove that particular piece and allow ourselves yeah. to be ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So um, when I was uh, looking at the book and, uh, you know, originally I thought, okay, well, it's the pandemic. Why don't I just put together all of the pieces from my pot on uh, my blog and, you know, put it just kind of arrange it in a book. And then I started doing that and I realized, oh, actually, I need to make this into a book book. Like, you know, it's still a series of little pieces, but I needed to have um, to write more to kind of make it cohesive. And I really, I really saw this book in a way as a kind of love letter to my father, uh, because he was the person who, um, you know, who created my love of music. He was the ultimate rock and roll lover. You know, I was going to mention that that. I felt like it was a love story of some Mm -hmm. sort, and I felt like it was braided with your father, and Mm -hmm. with the drums and the freedom that it gave you from reality. It felt like you were telling a story of how that all came together, how it made you, you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much for reading the book. First of all, that's just really, really wonderful. Well, thank you um, for writing. It's very insightful. That was, I said, I had a bone to pick with you. You, Gary will tell you, I tend to pride myself on having a decent vocabulary. However, (laughs) Miss uh, Analogies, Metaphors, and Vocabulary over here wove me into a circle a few times. I don't like stumbling on a word in the middle of a sentence and not Uh knowing what it is. That's something, because generally I'm a context clues guy. You're not even going to hang me up on a word because I can derive from the scenario what it means pretty closely. But you got me and I was like, no, 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 no. I don't like this. 
I had to stop. And I know I even highlighted it because I was like, this is not cool. I'm dying to know what the word is. So am I, now that I can't see my notes here. <laughs> it was very short. It was, God bless it. I'm going to, ah, I'm going to pronounce this and it's not going to be fun just because I feel like it's oh got gosh. like a tongue twister-esque thing to it. <laughs> Autodidactic. Oh. Oh, oh, autodidactic. Didactic. Yeah. See, that's why I didn't like it. I didn't know there was a die in there. So it was throwing <laughs> off the syllables. I was like, didactic. I can't do this. Gary is, uh, he is now Googling. I can see his face light yeah, up. Yeah, I do that a lot. <laughs> well, it is, it's something, uh, the word applies to you, and I'm sure Gary too. You 100%. Know, many of us. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Where we just, we teach our, like we learn that. ourselves. You know, we, we, we learn wherever we can in a way. Well, now that right? you told me it's autodidactic, it's That's a lot easier to consume. <laughs> I have a That's tendency really to not know how words are pronounced for the simple fact that I consume a lot of my information alone and I don't uh -huh. converse with a lot of people about it. So I tend to fall into this bucket where I won't know certain words and how they're pronounced for the simple fact that you don't pronounce something when you're reading it. You know, yeah. if your mouth, yeah. if your, well, I mean, if your lips are moving, there's a whole other issue you might have if you're reading. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things that I love stumbling on stuff like this because it allows me to see that language does have a purpose. That yeah. you have to have more words because there's more emotions and things to describe than we can possibly imagine. And to assign it to a bucket, like sad mm. or happy mm. or, you know, speaking frankly. I use candor. Gary and I joke about this all the time. But candor is a word that describes something different from frankly or mm -hmm. from any other word that's describing that emotion or feeling that you're trying to convey. And I like that you, within your book, utilized beautiful analogies to describe things. Like you said mm -hmm. that um, it smells like beer taps and bleach and vaguely of vomit in the uh, bar you were working in. <laughs> <laughs> When I'm loading in. I'm kidding. There yeah. were much, there were beautiful things, but I paused on that and I was like, I was there. I was like, yeah. <laughs> like, I immediately knew where I was standing. Walk into any bar with beer taps and that's what it smells like at four in the afternoon when you're wa walking in there, loading the equipment in there. Yeah. Uh, oh, <laughs> I'll credit this one to your friend because you did say it, but it was so pointed. Everyone wants a Van Gogh in their living room. But no one wants Van Gogh. No one wants Van Gogh in their living room. Right. They <laughs> Everyone don't want wants Van a Van Gogh. Yeah, they don't want Van Gogh <laughs> standing there with, ha with one ear and a real situation on your carpet. I agree with you. It's you defend, not necessarily defend, um, you recognize that stages of life hold different intentions based on the egotistical mask that you're wearing at that moment. And our musicians and rock stars have this extreme issue with being judged in their actions for the time frame that they lived in, even though they were creating an art that no one else could possibly conceive. And an analogy popped into my head, a metaphor, I don't know. But for me, when you open a gift, you don't judge the paper. Yeah. You accept the gift. 
The mm -hmm. gift is there regardless of what it was inside of. And I feel like that's a great way and to reconcile because I do have issues with certain figures throughout time that created an art, but in retrospect, we can see that they were tortured in some way, shape, or form, which when you're nefarious or you're doing things that are not of character, you're still tortured. You're not doing those things mm -hmm. because you're, you know, in a good place or a good headspace, right? Mm -hmm. And we demand mm -hmm. so much of our stars, of our famous, mm -hmm. and they mm -hmm. sit under so much scrutiny. And I think that recognizing that they have a flame inside of them that is authentic, irregardless of what is happening on the outside, and we should actually embrace the art that escapes a tortured mind and has such beauty at the same time. Because to me, that's an art that is using or that is exceeding the issues with the person that is creating it. And mm -hmm. that's beautiful in and of itself. Gary's back. Yeah, you're you're really talking about that that big question, you know, um, if the artist turns out to have engaged in bad behavior. What do we do with the art, right? It's a huge thing right now. Kanye West. Yeah, it's really, yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's really bad. I mean, there are, there are artists that I adore. I mean, Jimmy Page. Of course. Had a 14-year-old girlfriend. I mean, come on. Like, we all know these stories, right? And so, and the way, the place that I come to with it is that, um, you know, the art like everybody is a complex character, right? And we all have, like you say, we have these masks that we wear that we put in front of us. And I'm really interested, um, Jay, when you're, you talk about masks a lot in mm. um, the program and, you know, the way that, I'm sorry, my dog is snoring. Oh, it doesn't lot. matter at all. <laughs> I have a bull mastiff that comes in the studio. Uh, she drools mini, and farts. A mini and mastiff. Okay. Oh, is, <laughs> a it a, uh, is it a pug or a, <laughs> a pug? Yeah, yeah, there you go. Same family. I used to, <laughs> yeah. I actually told somebody one time at a, whatchamacallit, a, uh, one of those, a farmer's market. Where everybody brings uh -huh. their dogs and this guy was, you know, showing off. He's one of those people that knows everything about your dog that you don't know. And I was like, well, he's like, that's a bull master. I said, no, 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 no. I said, that is a giant pug. And he's like, oh, yeah. I've heard about those. I was like, oh my Lord. <laughs> Dude, I was like, you've not heard of a giant pug, but I'm going to let you walk through life believing that for the rest of it. <laughs> I'm going to let you tell people they have a giant pug. So I apologize for interrupting that's there, but really it was too right. fitting. That's okay. That's okay. Uh, but yeah, we were talking about masks and you know, I think it's really interesting because I agree, we we all wear a mask and our mask is uh, created, you know, mm. as created for us and we attach to masks. And the interesting thing is to think about, and I, um, this idea is from uh, my teacher of uh, the modality that I practice, Issa Gucciardi, Dr. Issa Gucciardi in Berkeley, California. But she talks about how if you look at somebody's mask as the um, as what they're putting up to hide the wound, mm. and so when I was, uh, you know, 
doing this work and I was looking at my own mask and I was thinking, well, I feel that the mask that I put to the world is one of kind of benevolence, you know, like uh, of kindness of, you know, this thing. And what am, what is that? Like, where's my wound in that? You know, if if that mask breaks, if somebody sees me as being cruel or mean or, um, you know, I say something and it hurts somebody's feelings, right? What, um, and that mask breaks, it's like the worst thing. Like, I'll stay up all night thinking that, like, I'm not as, you know, whatever. What is that mask hiding? For me, that mask was hiding a feeling of ultimately being bad. Right. Mm. Like being some like not enough, being not good enough, being um, ultimately not lovable. Right. Not worthy. And I think that's where, you know, my whole life through my um, uh, through my meditation practices, examining this kind of ocean, like level of shame at the base of me where I just couldn't mm. figure out what is that. It's and learned. I asked it. Yeah, well, I asked a friend what shame, where shame even comes from. And she said, it's basically, it's to prevent you from being put out into the forest by the tribe, you know? And I realized, oh, I'm afraid of not being accepted, not being mm. like, included, not being loved ultimately, right? And so that's the mask. So when we look at people's masks, it's like a window into their suffering. And it can be really difficult when the mask is causing, is doing bad things, you know, is their bad behavior. And we don't forget, like we don't accept and excuse the bad behavior. We, the bad behavior is bad. And, you know, that we understand, like we need to discern, like that's not pro like the way that we should behave. That's their but character, also, not them. But we can also see that that bad behavior is really coming from that deep wound within them. And when we can see people like that, then we recognize um, that deep connection that we all have to this kind of intrinsic wound. Now, I believe that we're born as, you know, the reason that we're here is to be born to remember the light remember that we're ultimately perfect, that we're in like, you know, if we think of everything as divine, that we are intrinsically divine and we're here to kind of remember that. So when I see people really um, behaving badly and suffering, I think, gosh, how far they've gotten from understanding that about themselves or about, and therefore anybody else, how far they've gotten. And so that's how we can look at somebody who's just behaving terribly and causing a lot of harm, how we can look at them with compassion. Because mm. if we only look at them as this other evil thing, it doesn't solve any problem. It per just perpetuates the pain that we all suffer in, which is to ultimately believe that we're not here in this kind of, that we're not walking divinity. You know, and um, so that's a little kind of no. Intense, I'm I I'm with you 110. percent But yeah, I love the discussion of the masks because the masks mm -hmm. are very interesting in that we collect them because you're describing the mask, and you are correct that we will use it to shield the 
what we believe is the inferior quality that requires that to be placed or presented in front of everyone, you know, to hide behind it. I like to think about the larger the mask, the smaller the human behind it, Um, the more Mm. frail, the more sad, all those types of things, because they are unable to allow themselves to be themselves and accept themselves for who they are, um, laws and all, because like you said, it's perfectly imperfect uh, at the end of the day. And we're made one way. And mm-hmm. for me, once I realized that I needed to be me in order to be happy, and that any action and thought that was contrary to my authentic self was where the source of my pain lived. And that once I allowed myself to be me, I was no longer slapping the face of whatever or whomever created me by thinking I was better. By thinking I had a better plan, a better approach, a better way to feel about it, a better way to judge it, a better way to fucking do anything. But in reality, I think that whatever made me has a better grasp on shit than I do. How did you get to the point um, of understanding who you are? Like when you say that you, when you understood that you needed to be me. Good question. How did you come to that? Meditation. Yeah. Um, So I had a term that was given to me, I believe it was by Kelly Kane. Um, when she was on the episode, she had said, or no, anyway, I'm butchering it. I'll put it in the notes. But she said that um, that addiction was an invitation to ascension. And that it was something that put you on your knees and showed you that you have nothing else to lose. You're done. You're on the ground. And the pain needs to be buried into the ground so it becomes a new tree without all of the trauma and different things that forced it into the ground. You need to hit the ground in order to grow. Everybody's bottom is different. For me, it was continually trying to obtain happiness through the eyes of others. No matter what role it was, I was going to live up to the best of that character so that people would love me despite me. Because you wrote about in your book that when you would leave a show and open up Facebook and the self-loathing would begin. It still happens. (laughs) Everybody does it, right? It's weird how we play a game of reverse Tetris after we walk away from situations where we start plucking thoughts and feelings and justifications out of our head for who we are, what we did, and how we did it in the moment as we walk away. Which, by the way, is insanity because you're not there. (laughs) To, to sit there and stack blocks 
about something from a month ago is legitimately insane. Like, <laughs> if you did that, they would put you in a padded room. But if it were <laughs> actual objects, but that's what you're doing in your head. You're placing <laughs> all your, well, she said this, so I was justified in being this way. Or this, you know, music happened this way, and it wasn't my fault that we were out of time. It was actually this person's fault because they weren't, you know, they didn't hear the cue before that. So we were out of time for this long, not that long. You know, it's it's yeah. weird how we will formulate our position. And we do that with the larger scale things too, especially when we do bad shit. We'll work so hard to fill that gap, fill yeah. that void mm -hmm. with justification. And we can't, that's when we start hurting. Mm -hmm. Because that bucket overflows. Mm -hmm. You can only do that for so long. Well, you just fuck, right? Mm -hmm. You're just sitting there in your own mess. You can't put it in little piles anymore because it's all one big pile. And for me, it was with meditation, it allowed me, you're going to relate to this, to see how false time really is. How large and expansive it actually is between thoughts and actions and reactions that that gap is massive. And once you start to see that, you begin to find what caused that stripe on your mask. The one that you want people to see that won't show them who you really are behind it. Each stripe has its own core wound and it has something behind it that's causing you to act that way. And when you start to meditate, you start to see that gap between the reaction and the feeling and the why. It starts to just show up. I use the example of the coffee cup on the counter that leaves a ring. That coffee cup sits there. It's your trigger. You walk in, you're like, who left the damn coffee cup on here again? Right? It is your reaction every single time. You start to meditate. And the longer you meditate, you start to notice this phenomenon where there's a gap between seeing the coffee cup and becoming angry. And then after that, it'll move on to another level. And you'll recognize that there's a reason for the reaction before the coffee cup that something else is causing it. You start to see that there's decisions around the coffee cup. Do I choose to be upset right now or do I grab the cup and just put it where it needs to be, right? And then you start to realize that decisions not made the now require no prep repercussions in the future. You don't have to worry about what you did if you didn't emote to it in the present. Yeah, I think that's how I was able to see that my wounds were self-inflicted and that I had to take the time, sit down and unravel one at a time. And I am so far from done. Mm -hmm. So far from anything. I don't know that you're supposed to be done. I think you're just supposed mm -hmm. to recognize that that's what reality is mm -hmm. and that judgment is the stupidest thing you can ever do. Because that's where all greed, anger, 
malice, hate, everything is rooted in that small fraction of a decision when you're looking at someone because Mm -hmm. it's a double wound. You're Mm -hmm. wounding the person for what you want them to hurt for and you're wounding yourself for the judgment that you placed on another that you will feel for the rest of your life until you reconcile it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember when I, I saw that, wow, and I started looking at my thoughts and I thought, gosh, every thought I have is a judgment. <laughs> it's some Ooh, judgment. That <laughs> and that's, yeah. And, and, and judging it like it's, it was better or maybe it will be better or it, you know, it's just like swimming around that? this whole time. And it's because, you know, I believe that our mind is, um, our thoughts are physiological processes right? Mm. They're like the same processes that, you know, as the things that digest our food and, you know, move our muscles when I'm moving my hands like this and all of these things that we don't even think about that our body does. I think our thoughts are this way as well. I think our thoughts rise up because of past experience and our DNA, you know, our tendencies and they, they come through and we believe that we are our thoughts and so we follow them willy-nilly down any Ain't road that they that want. that the and, biggest cosmic screw? Well, and our thoughts are coming, if they're coming from our body, the most important thing that our thought is always telling us is safety, safety, safety. Yep. Keep breathing, keep breathing, keep pumping the blood, keep, right? If it's a physiological process, it wants us to be safe and protected. And so that's what it does. It looks and it judges and it makes sense. You know, Mm -hmm. our brain is making sense of what is going on around us in order to keep us safe. And that's why we're being, we have all of these thoughts. Every moment we're judging every second our thoughts. So when you're in that that process of meditation and you're falling and then time stretches out and you start seeing how the thoughts rise and then you watch how, you know, the emotion rises about the thought. First, the story comes, then an emotion rises, then you feel it physically, right? It's like these processes all kind of happen together. When you can keep that separation, like when you start to separate it further and further and, and separate the reactions, that place that you are when you're doing that, that's you. 100%. That's when you say, when I'm looking for who I am, what would it be like to move from that place where you're not, um, you're moving from a place of, of truth, from a place Uninhibited of Uninhibited by ease, those implicit biases. And, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, and, ima- and imagine that you're in, in that place, your nervous system is completely relaxed right? Because you're not, the nervous system is firing reaction with the reactions. If you're no longer reactive that way, then your nervous system is completely calm. You're in peace. That's your natural state, right? Mm -hmm. That really is you. When I say we're walking divinity, that's as, that's close to where we, where we understand that. What would it be like to move from that place in our world? It would be, it would mean that you would immediately see into the same field in everybody that you meet. 
there would be no defensiveness or mask. No need. Judgment there would doesn't be no exist. need because there's nothing to fear. There's no fear there. Mm-hmm. Everything is whole. The body fears death, but what is that space within you fear? Um, there is no fear there. It is just, it's pure being. It's pure essence. Have you ever read the book, um, The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker? Where? Read it. Yeah. There's, okay, I'm going to write it down. There's some information. The way that he approaches our root cause for issues lies in the conscious understanding that we have the ability to die. And that realization is one of the causes for the human condition in that you, what you and I are discussing is in fact, um, if it were other creatures looking at us, they would consider us mentally ill. And I believe that's what all the other creatures on the planet do. I think they're looking at us going, those, they're, look at those crazy people. They're building stuff in place for no reason. You know, they're running around. They're trying to eat us. They're just, they're batshit crazy, right? That's what they're thinking. But I don't know, man. I, I think that it, with the way that he described it was that there is, if you did a root cause analysis, one of the main features in there would be that, oh, shit, I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. That's a crazy day when it kind of all falls on you at once. Right, right? Or as a I mean, species. Just, yeah. What do like, you do with well, that knowledge? You look for God. You look for afterlife. Yeah. You look for all the things that can replace the knowledge of your death with further life. And then what happens? You start to create legacies. You know, mm. oh, I need something to justify my time in the now. I need to yeah. justify my existence. I'll have lots of kids. I'll build buildings. Mm. I'll start writing music. I'll do all these things to justify my life. But in reality, it's coming, chief. Like, there's no getting around the reaper. Well, I think that the Tibetan, I think there's a practice in Tibetan Buddhism where they they meditate on death five times a day. Um, And the reason they do that is to bring them into the moment. Because if you recognize if you really understand that this is finite, the time here in this form is finite, it brings you more into um, taking advantage of really wanting to be right here, right now. What is this that I'm experiencing? We are, in fact, one inhalation from death at any given moment. That realization for me was a heavy one. I was like, yeah, that also puts faith in perspective. I don't have to have faith in something that's written down, but faith in the fact that my breath will return every time is something that I take for granted a lot. Because we are arrogant creatures. When you were speaking earlier about the breath, one of the things that cracks me up is that we think it's something we can catch. That our Mm -hmm. ego is so huge that we will tell people to catch their breath. What the else were they going to (laughs) do? Like, if you didn't tell them that, were they not going to gasp? (laughs) But we believe we have some kind of control 
over that physiological response that every time we exit our autonomic system, whatever the fuck it's called, right? But that little spot that says, inhale, inhale, that's faith for me. Well, and it's kind of a perfect metaphor for the idea of how free will and divine will kind of get braided together, right? Because we are, we both have control, like I can right now, <laughs> go like that. Right. I have control of that. But ultimately, my breath is going to happen. That's what I mean. It's so weird. Right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to happen. So it's happening. I'm both the breathed and the breather. <laughs> breathed and right. the breather. I, yeah, I would have screwed that up. I, I think I've screwed up a couple of words while we're talking. I tend to, my self-loathing is in the next sentence. <laughs> That's Bring how that effed my brain is. I'm, I'm telling you about something and already judging what I just said the sentence before. Not good enough. That didn't come out right. Left turn, right turn. I also think yeah, that that's a gift. Yeah. I think that that's how it's like sacks certain people Christmas, communicate. Though. It's not a great What's gift. That? It's like sacks for Christmas. It's not a great gift, but it's a gift. <laughs> it serves a purpose. <laughs> it's socks for Christmas. I need them. But right, yeah. Gary, welcome back. You've had some technical difficulties. We didn't even get to really uh, catch up with you. How you been out there, man? So... They're having a huge F1 race here in Vegas next year. So they've tore up the whole city to do so. So they're moving all the power lines and uh, the power just keeps going off. And they're going to do that for a year for a one day race, which I like racing, but not anymore. No, it's like the Olympics, <laughs> like, man. They will, they will annihilate a city, town, wherever it's going to be at for four years and then just leave it there like a Cleveland mall. That was for you, Gary. Yeah, there's one left. I, there's one I left. I really... I really love the light show behind you, Gary. It's really pretty. Yeah. So, uh, Gary, this, this is tell her about your space. apartment and um, with colors. Dude, you'll love this. It's like, uh, I don't know, like, you know when like Macaulay Culkin got like the credit card and like just did whatever he wanted? <laughs> like I did, I did the exact same thing, but 30 years later, like all the <laughs> shit I couldn't afford as a kid. I have a small apartment. I got my car, which I love, in the very small garage. I have all the shoes I couldn't afford as a kid. I have all the music equipment I couldn't afford as a kid. I hate earth tones, so there's no wood in this place, um, except what's holding it. it up. Everything's just gray walls oh, and as much good. color as I could pack into things. So he hates that, earth tones. Okay, he's here again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I later in my life decided that like I had to have everything be pink. <laughs> I never even thought of pink, but suddenly I was like, I'm painting my ceiling. Oh, so you pink. love my hat. I'm doing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's weird like that. I get the same things. Like, it's like, like late onset OCD in some ways. Like, I don't know. So mine's red. Like everything's red. And, uh, uh -huh. but, uh, I have so many questions. I don't know what you guys covered already, but. Please just rip them off, man. Mm -hmm. Um. One of the topics I was just talking to a friend of mine. So I'm blessed to have all these like these women in my life that do extraordinary things. One of my best friends is an airline pilot and she's Muslim and less than like 1% of all airline pilots are female wow. and Muslim. And then I work with a lot of pro fighters that are female at the top of the, you know, the game. And um, obviously being a drummer is a probably mostly male thing. 
Mm. You know, uh, I just, you know, for, for one, I like to talk to a lot of kids and stuff and, and get all these preconceived notions out of their head of what they can and can't do based on gender, race, or socioeconomical issues. So, like, was it tough to get into being such an amazing drummer? Like, were there roadblocks that you think you wouldn't have had? Or is that something that motivated you to become so good because maybe people told you you couldn't? Mm, yeah. Well, um, you know, I, my father was really into female and he had three daughters. So he was really into female empowerment. Um, and he believed that, you know, teaching kids sports, girls sports, he was always a coach and he was really into how the power of athleticism could really um, give w women power. And uh, so I grew up with that. When I was 13, I saw a, uh, a female drummer and was completely mesmerized and transfixed. But at that point, I had taken all of these different, like, at, begged to play all these different instruments. And at that point, I was not really getting along with my parents because I'd hit puberty. And the idea of going and telling them I wanted to do another instrument just seemed far-fetched. So I didn't. So I didn't start playing till I was 27. Oh, wow. Um, wow. And yeah, so I, um, so I look back at that and I think, yes, that when I, you know, I was born in 65. So this is in, you know, the late seventies and it just didn't seem like, you know, I knew surfers, but I didn't know any female surfers. Mm. Right. I, we, we knew, uh, you know, all my family were really into sports, playing soccer and softball and stuff. Um, so, you know, female, the woman could do what she wanted. But at the same time, I was in a culture that said that my real value was the way I looked. Um, and so that's kind of, um, you know, and that caused me to turn inside of myself in a way. Um so when I found drums, it was uh, so liberating to, first of all, just have a natural affinity to it. When I started playing, I was like, oh, this actually really makes sense to me. Um, and then I started so late that I felt like I never competed with anybody because everybody mm. I knew had been playing for 15 years, right? So I competition kind of went away. Um, and so I think that. Um, you know, as a female drummer, I mean, there are many female drummers now, but I guess when I started there, it was a lot more about, um, you know, it was strange. Like I remember going to a, a music store and, and asking to see a kick pedal and the man saying, oh, is that for your boyfriend? <laughs> oh, it's man. like 28 years old. Jeez. <laughs> My drum teacher said, "said you know, it's not that they don't think you can't do it. It's just, just that there's this big empty hole in their brain where you don't that's exist, a good point. right? Yeah. So, um, so that's kind of how You're I was. You're not felt. Tommy Lee. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's the eighties, right? So, yeah, those so stores never changed. They're still like that. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. So I don't know that that's, um, you know, if that." says anything to what you're talking well, about but uh, i love but to hear yeah, the journey is, you know and like everyone's story is yeah. different but there's a similarities in most you know especially people yeah. that get to a high level you do yeah. derive power from the negative 
talk that you receive from all of these different members of the community that is live music. And I recognize in your book, because when he brought this up, I was curious to see how you were going to respond because as a group, um, you guys take all of that negative talk and turn it into fuel for the fire when you go out on stage. And one of the things well, that, that I read was yeah. that you mm-hmm. actually would go back to old things that people would say if somebody didn't say something that day. That you guys would pull on something. That said the poor guy that told you you sucked like 10 years ago becomes fuel today, which I thought was super cool. That It didn't matter. You just reached in the bag and said, I need something to, you know, something to prove. Yeah. Well, that was, um, yeah, that story was, uh, you know, I was in this um, three-piece hard rock band, stoner rock band. It was like my first real band. And we were together for seven or eight years um, from New York City. And one year we traveled, the year 2000, we traveled, we played uh, every night for, I think it was, we played 320 shows that night. So it was three women in a van traveling across the country, eight times playing in a different place every night. Right. And um, and that band was very much fueled because, first of all, it was grueling, right? That's to be rough. in a different city every uh, day, uh, doing all of our own loading, merch selling, packing, all that stuff. It was just the three of us. Um, and so uh, so we were kind of like, you know, warriors. And then we're playing, you know, hard rock. And there aren't a lot of women at that time doing that and not a lot of female bands. There were some female musicians, but not a lot of female, not female bands. I mean, even I remember in the 90s, Lilith Fair, I don't think there was a single female band on those stages. No, there were groups, but they weren't bands. Big difference. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And most of them were like the woman up front and then the, you know, the um, men playing the instruments. So, um, yeah, so uh, so we got our share of condescension and all of that kind of stuff. And we would definitely, because we were playing hard and, you know, strong music, it definitely fueled that um, for sure. I don't know that Zeparella has ever really um, used that as fuel so much um, because, um, first of all, um, people have always just been incredibly kind to us and the people who... Um, you know, feel like they need to to be very mansplainy or something. Um, it's just kind of becomes funny at a certain point, you know. Um, mm. But discernment um, does that over time, doesn't it? Yeah, oh. yeah. We don't have that kind of same angst and anger, I think, that I had, you know, twenty years ago when I was playing in that other band. But for sure. <laughs> Tell me it's about a, your. Uh, go ahead, please. I, I was going to say it's like, you know, that's the whole for a girl thing. There is a a boxing company and they just did a, a collaboration with Playboy and there's like fight like a girl's like their logo that they got out there. You know, it's like, oh, you guys are pretty good for a girl. And then it goes to, you're just pretty fucking good. You know, and like that's how fighters and other athletes, oh, you're, you're a pretty good boxer for a girl. And then they just become good. You know, I think yeah. you're probably so good by the time that that man formed that people can say shit because yet, you, you know, just honed your craft for so long. And if they are saying wow. something by that time, then you're just like, you know, they're an idiot. And they got, you know, like, I haven't listened to them, I think. It's like, you know, it's like, you know, the fighters as amateurs are coming up, but they're getting their skills, so they're unsure of themselves. So they'll listen to that right. and take it in. And 
it hurts more. And then it's like, once they know they're fucking good, like, I'm just good. Like, I don't care what you say, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, we do like to put our, each other in boxes for sure, you know. But um, I think it's yeah. self-love in tandem. I think you're, you're correct, mm. Gary, that the skills are there out of the passion that they continue. You continue to work on it. You play it because it makes you happy. It is who you are. You're, you're running through it. But at the same time, I think um, talking about your process with which you've grown over the years, I can see that over time, there had to be a certain amount of personal love story, falling in love with the reasons why we self-loathe after the show. And that <laughs> it doesn't, offense is to be taken, not given. That's right. Yeah, music's a, it's a crazy thing when you do your art for a living. We talk about this a lot and how it's like... Rough. You know, people a lot of times will say, do find the thing you love and make it your job. You never work a day in your life. And sometimes that crushes the thing that you love because you have to alter it in some way or you just, it, you know, you have to do it every day when you don't want to. You know, how do you feel about a long career as a musician? And, you know, obviously you love it. Is it one of those things where at some times you just hated it and couldn't stand it? Or is it one of those things yeah. where you loved every day of it? Yeah, I well, I... I just, just speaking to what you were talking about, people who do their art for a living, I know musicians who don't have the love. I mean, they say, I just don't have the love I had because I'm gigging six nights a week and it's just become this kind of, I'm just like this machine that does this, mm -hmm. right? And all of that creative spark, it ends up, you know, becoming a craft and... um rather than, um, you know, which is wonderful to have a craft, but it's also that, that spark, that, that excitement, that enthusiasm has gone. And I think that's really heartbreaking. And, um, you know, because I started so late, I didn't ever really feel like I, no, that's not true. I mean, at a certain point, I think I thought, well, maybe I should kind of you know, get my chops together and learn all of the traditional songs so I can kind of go out and be a, you know, a drummer on call and it just never sounded like fun. And, you know, talking about like awful. connecting to your, talking about your, you know, connecting to your childlike, you know, uh, enthusiasm. I, um, I don't know. I just, I love playing um, I love playing music and the idea of having to slog it out more than you already slog it out. I mean, I love my band and it's still a slog can be. Um, but um, yeah, I, I think that it's important to really, uh, you know, keep your, keep your enthusiasm, right? And not sacrifice your enthusiasm to make a buck with it. You know, yeah, better, you made the right better call. Better you go get it. Yeah. yeah, better you go get a, a day job, which I did work day jobs that I hated for a long time. Um, but yeah, that makes sense. Instead but, of going and playing yeah. music as a day job, music you don't want to play in places you don't want to be, go work at the mall or an office yeah. or, you know, be it was like Foot Locker. And Might stuff as well like get a high paying job and, at that point. You know, it's like. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Because like when you put in, when you really calculate how much time a musician spends and how much money they make, like, I mean, I'm in the hole for lifetimes, no. right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, unless, you know, unless tomorrow Beyonce calls, like I'm in the hole. Right? You hear that, and Beyonce? Even then, I don't Come know. on, give us a call. <laughs> I had her mom's phone even number. Then. 
Oh, that's right. <laughs> Do you want yeah, to tell that Beyonce's story? Beyonce's monster. Yeah, it was, it, it was a bet, you know, like that I couldn't call Beyonce. I'm like, I call her mom. And it, like, no, you can't. I'm like, there's no way her mom's number is just not in the phone book. And it is. So I won. I'm like, <laughs> like she was really mad. She's like, <laughs> that's what makes it great. But well, maybe you helped her. Yeah. Maybe you helped her because maybe now she has an unlisted number. She probably does. She's like, I'm like just to kind of because I wanted to prove that I could. What the fuck are you talking about? Like, oh, oh my yeah. god, that's funny. <laughs> that's really funny. I want to um, step to the side here for a second because you bring up something throughout your book that fascinates me because. I believe that we're capable of anything. I believe that we're told we can't play drums. I believe that we're told we can't play piano. We're told that it's difficult. We're told that, you know, all these different things. That that is actually what is preventing us from achieving that particular method of expressing ourselves, right? Because we have all these limitless capabilities um, with regard to music. And you bring up throughout your book that you are in a, a different state of mind when you're drumming, except for when you're not, or when you have to not be in that state of mind, i.e. cues, uh, change in elevation. That was interesting. Um, did you know that a drummer has to Climatize to an area because of the fact, like Denver, Mile High, that if they are not climatized, they can fatigue a lot faster, the oxygenated oh, yeah. blood, and that's a workout at the drums. I thought that was pretty cool to read. But mm -hmm. yeah, I, I'm curious about that area versus the other because I find mm -hmm. myself doing odd things. We joke all the time. There's little tells in life that show you what you're capable of and why you're sabotaging yourself or that you are. Mm -hmm. I also produce music, love music. Music is something I found late in life. I relate to this a lot because again, mm -hmm. I don't give a crap who else is putting out what else. doesn't mean anything mm -hmm. to me because I'm just enjoying making it. And I will find at times that my foot or my feet while I'm producing music or listening to music, will be in perfect time. I'll be adding stuff. I will be giving it, you know, additional beats where they need to be the whole nine until I notice. The moment I notice that I'm doing it and that it's in time and that it's in sync and it's going well, it, I might as well just take my feet and tie them in a bow tie. Mm -hmm. I know that sounds weird, but I feel like that's something similar. You're lost in the mm -hmm. music. You feel it. You have these natural inclinations to follow it. But the moment that you're judging your movements as to whether or not they are correct or are creating, that's the moment that it just falls like a house of cards. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it goes exactly back to what we were talking about, about meditation. You know, when we're in that place where time spreads out and there is no fear or judgment and you were to look down at your foot doing that thing at that moment, 
your foot would continue to do that thing because the foot is playing from that, is doing what it's doing from that place. You're just looking at it from the other place, the place of judgment, the place of thoughts, right? So when I'm playing, you know, I think that Buddhism has a really wonderful way of prioritizing attention, Mm. prioritizing the mind. That's why they like, you know, Buddhists will say it's more like a science than it is a religion because it's about being able to really have the mind be so clear that we're not trying to escape the mind. We're trying to be ultra focused in the mind. So when we're in that space, that wider awareness space, um, then we're able to see the thoughts, see the things that are happening, but then not get pulled toward them, be able to see fully. So I, when I'm allowing the song to play me, it's both, I'm both um, in a different state of awareness, but I'm also hyper aware. Mm. I, I can you know, completely understand this. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a meta state of mind where mm-hmm. you're able to observe your observations, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. You're able to observe yeah. thoughts, even though they're not yours. You can right. recognize thoughts are collective and that they're chosen over time. Gary will tell you, I use that metaphor of the snow globe and that all thoughts exist outside of your snow globe. And the only time that they become reality is when you reach out grab one and pull it into your globe. And the beauty is it only exists and changes the color or the feeling of that globe as long as you hold it. The moment you let Mm -hmm. it go and go back to observing it, it loses its power. Mm -hmm. And I just believe that we're all sharing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some people are quite empathetic and get very disrupted by the fact that they, they don't know what's theirs. Right. That's, that's an odd one, not knowing what's mm-hmm. yours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what the, um, you know, some of the, the shamanic journey, the shamanic techniques, um, that's what they're really addressing. You know, what is, what is mine here? You know, what is mine to, um, to understand and to let go of? And what are things that I've taken on? Mm. You know, um, there's a, a practice where, um, you know, say you were raised by somebody who, you know, um, was in a lot of pain, right? Well, you're a little child. And so you begin to try to find ways to take on that person's pain. Mm-hmm. Um, what, mostly because you need to survive and you're doing it because you don't even realize, of course, you're a child. You don't realize you're doing this. But then you become an adult and you're like, what is this, you know, fear or pain that I have? in here, here and, and you can recognize sometimes, oh, it's an old pattern that I took on from, um, from the caregiver. Yeah, it's like right? finding out so, the coffee cup on the counter was actually your mom trying to preserve the look of your home because you were below a certain socioeconomic standard and you didn't want mm-hmm. to be judged. So the small mm-hmm. things that you did around the house showed that you cared for the little bit of things that you had and that they became an obsessive situation where you had to remove things from there because people might judge you. Yeah. And then you're an adult. Suddenly you got kicked into OCD. Yep. <laughs> right? And you're screaming and you're at like, your oh. kid over the coffee mm-hmm. cup ring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we're all very, very complex, but the thing I like about working, um, in those, uh, the, with the shamanic methods is that really is about our metaphor and understanding our own internal metaphor. It's not somebody telling us what our insides mean. It's about us really investigating and understanding ourselves, um, our own symbolism. You Mm. know, it's kind of like what Carl Jung was talking about. There's symbols throughout our, all of the culture that kind of hang together across cultures that happens inside of us as well. Like we, we all have both our own specialized uh, metaphors, but then we have ones that we've taken on from, from others. We let other people write our stories. Um, (laughs) The character, we allow people to provide us lines within our biography or whatever description that is Mm -hmm. what we want people to believe we are. We allow other people to write that story. And Mm -hmm. I think that you're a good example of someone that has tried to write their own character, their own Mm -hmm. story. And I appreciate you for that. Um, Mm -hmm. Coming from that group or that lifestyle and having Mm -hmm. the view that you have on reality I think obviously comes with a certain amount of, like you said, starting late maturity, walking into the game without the same insecurities that you have when you're 18. Um, I believe that. But I also believe it's about who comes into your life when you make those decisions to live authentically. And mm-hmm. I like the fact that before we end this, I want to give you a chance to talk about Gretchen <laughs> and what that relationship is between the two of you because I think it's super special. Well, it's so funny. You said her name and I got like my whole body like got all tingly because <laughs> I just love her so much. She's a, a dear, um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I did, I did write that piece about her in the book. Um, you know, we've been playing music together for 20 years. And um, like I say in the book, there's, you know, we've, the only time that we've ever really like gotten at each other about anything is just in the, you know, being tired, being grumpy, being, you know, that kind of thing. But nothing ever, you know, I mean, so rarely does that even happen. You know, we've never really had any big, um, any big disagreements. We always have an ability to, to work things out. Um, And, you know, sometimes, and being able to say difficult things to each other, you know, um, as, um, and so, you know, and this is all because of her, you know, (laughs) I think, because Gretchen is um, incredibly, um, she's just a very wise person and, um, and, and thoughtful and uh, brilliant and all the things I could go on and on about her because um, I love her so much and because it's true. But we go into, we've, from the beginning, we went into this band, into um, this relationship as business partners at the beginning, um, as, um, you know, as creative partners, as uh, musicians playing together, as friends. And the basic agreement we made at the beginning was that what was good for her was good for me. What fulfilled her fulfilled me. 
that my job is to make sure that whatever her dream is, whatever it is that I can do to help her is what, um, that's my, that's my purpose. And, and I feel that coming from her too. So we've never had, you know, any feeling of like the idea of competition with Gretchen seems ridiculous to me. You know, I, I've only just wanted her, like every time she succeeds, I'm just elated as if it were my own. And I, I think, um, you know, to go into things saying, look, we're going to have difficult times, um, but let's just agree that anything that I say to you that might be hurtful or feel at the, in the moment hurtful is because I, at, at the base fundamental level, I want what's best for you. And um, I think when you approach a relationship like that, then it, you have a foundation, you know, you have a core um, of friendship and, um, and of a good working relationship. So, um, yeah, so I, I don't know. I, I, she's a great gift in my life and, um, she's taught me so much. Um, you know, I'm quite a bit older than Gretchen, but, um, you know, I learn from her all the time. You can, you can recognize the relationship. It's very, um, it's beautiful. Um, I think mm -hmm. that you had uh, brought up. I just wanted you to have the ability to uh, express that on the show because I don't think that a mm -hmm. lot of people get to see that true artists embrace another artist's vision. Mm, yeah. Oh gosh, that that's a big conversation. And you know, as women, you know, we're we're always pitted mm. against each other, right? I mean, I, I think I said in the book, like it's a whole, you know. Uh, reality TV industry is women against women, right? And, um, and uh, that, like I've always wanted the people that I play with, play music with, which have mostly been women. I've have played with some wonderful men, but um, but everybody I play with, I want them, I want them to elevate. I want them to do what you're makes in Gary's them wheelhouse right, right now. By the way, um, really, his motto oh, is. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Your friends and like, don't be in competition with your friends if you are. It's to further each other, to iron sharpens iron more than to go against each other. I mean, I see that so much these days. Like mm -hmm. people just, their friends are their worst enemies. Plus, they could affect their life in so many ways. Your enemies stay away from them, you know, and maybe you have a clash every now and then, but if it's your, you know, best friend or something and they're secretly in competition, you might not even know that they are, you know, mm -hmm. and, but you know, the fact that two women musicians like to pit it against each other by outside forces, you never let that, you know, you start to feel that way about yourselves. Because people say, oh, she said this about you or she's just that or, you know, people lie and they try to, you know, they either like the drama or misery needs company or whatever. But um, I see it in all these fight gyms that I work in, you know, it starts to get really good. Half the gym supports them and, you know, really loves their accomplishments the other half jealous or you know feel like that's less of a light or you know or something on them and you know, I just I never got that you know I have really talented friends and I always want to be the least talented person in the room the dumbest person in the room the poorest person in the room you know like yeah I have people to to learn from and to motivate me and that you is. know if you want to be the big fish in the small pond for your whole life like you're just you know mm -hmm. you're gonna hit on the ceiling and that's it you know 
Yeah. That, that's really cool the way you put it because it's exactly how it. Yeah. And you get to be, like I say, it's the lazy musicians. I mean, you know, Gretchen's just been on fire in her career since I've known her. And holy I've gotten, shit, she's good. Yeah. Like, and I gifted I've in to, ways that gave me chills. Yeah. Amazing. Like so many ways. And um, so I play with Gretchen. Like, I don't got to do nothing. <laughs> like, I, you know, right I mean, on, I, man. Isn't that cool? I, you get to just, well, <laughs> you bring up a great point before we wrap up. You trust her in her pursuit and passion and love of what she's putting out. She trusts you to put out with love and passion what you're making. Together, you're allowed to be yourselves and together at the same time. You're yeah. both able to produce your art next to another person's art and have it be one piece of art at the same time. That requires trust. That mm -hmm. requires passion. And that requires understanding who you're working with. And you clearly you have a great group. I'm not trying to isolate just the two of you, but I can tell that, that you learn a lot from each other based on the way that you wrote. Um, and age is BS. Doesn't mean anything. Wisdom comes mm -hmm. from experience, not time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and you can be wise in one area and dumb as shit in another. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that, I mean, I will say that about all of the women that I've played with in Zepparello, they've all been magical, fantastic, wonderful people, you know, and um, I'm just incredibly proud to have, you know, people are like, how do you find these women? And I'm like, I, it's just, they, I'm gifted to be able to, to meet these these amazing people. So, yeah. Well, I'm 100% sure they would say the same thing about you. Um, Some of them. I pre <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, you know, anytime they don't just means that they have a, a flaw within themselves they need to address. It's something or, that they don't like about themselves. Well, you know, I would like to put it on everybody else, but I'm sure I've behaved badly and not done the right thing. Oh, I know you I know? have. I'll I mean, be doing yeah. this show until I'm 100. <laughs> trying to uh, pay back my past lives. Right. Um, <laughs> what you're seeing now is a karma sale. I'm uh, <laughs> just trying to get it all gone before it's over. <laughs> it might as well be a karma clearance. Job, right? Yeah, yeah, right? You're in this shit, man. I, I heard you have to repeat it if you don't get rid of it. I need to sell this shit quick. I screwed up a lot in the beginning. <laughs> I know. Isn't it, a, isn't it crazy how the patterns that we're here to work on, they just show up early in your life and then they just keep getting bigger yeah, and bigger bastards, and bigger, man. Right? Way too long ago. Like, can I get some recent stuff that I can just solve real quick? I don't need the path anymore. This is like Candyland. Like shoots and ladders or some shit like that. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Clem. I can't begin to tell you how rewarding this was to mm -hmm. have the opportunity to read your story, your mm -hmm. words, your interpretation of what this ride on the rock actually is. Mm -hmm. um, and I appreciate you for being a lighthouse. Um, mm -hmm. I say it all the time on episodes. Lighthouse is how people find their way. You don't tell people where they're going. They got to find their own way. You just give them your example to follow. And I think that you do that. Mm -hmm. Do you want to take mm -hmm. a moment, tell people where they can find your book? and um, where they can meet with you, do some spiritual coaching, anything like that. Yeah, thank you so much, Jane. And and right back at you, you know, to, to hold a platform that's so uplifting and so fun 
and engaging, you know, it really is very special. So um, I'm really, I'm really happy and proud to have been a, a guest on the show. Thank you. Um, and uh, you can go to clemthegreat.com. That's where you can find the book and the bands and all the status spiritual counseling. It's kind of the hub right there, Clem the Great. I love and it. Yeah, the book is on Amazon. I'm working on the audiobook. Oh my God, it's taking me forever to edit. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I'm actually, like, I, I, I'm not going <laughs> to lie. I went to Audible and I was like, okay, so she's going to have to get this done. I think it's coming out next week. I My goal was to have it out by the end of June. I'm on, on chapter 60 of 100 that's going in. So um, I'm almost tell you what, done. Can you let me do the sound effect for the page turn? Like the only thing, <laughs> like I remember when I was a kid, one of the coolest things was I had briefly, I had a Star Wars, talking Star Wars, like storybook. And every time you turn the page, R2-D2 would be like, doo, 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 doo. and every time. <laughs> oh, that would be wonderful. So you know what yours, I think, I think from reading could be the slide guitar. Oh, wouldn't that be or a, cool? A guitar slide at oh, every page so turn. Because cool. I know that you use that. In your music as a way to keep cadence with what's coming up. All right. So all right. you should that add that or, or you can I just should. put, you know, <laughs> but um bum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that would be fantastic. I appreciate you, Clem. And I'm sure Gary would say the same thing. He'll probably jump back here shortly. He's uh, like, I, like he said earlier, he's having some, uh, power problems due to upcoming F1 races in Vegas, which to me sounds like they made a video game on in real life. Vegas is kind of a video game, isn't it? <laughs> well, it is. Vegas is its own place. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. So thank you so much, Clem. And remember, everybody, be cool and keep learning. Thank you.